All right, well, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, I want to begin with a story. I told you I was being a bit geeky last Sunday morning where we're going all into it this morning. I want to tell you a science fiction story happens in, in another universe. I want you to imagine a world of very healthy people. Everyone on this planet is perfectly healthy. And they are remarkable people, full of vigor and remarkable abilities and great happiness. But then some hostile alien creature comes into this perfect world and introduces a virus. The virus is powerful and ultimately deadly. This virus affects every part of a person. His mind, his emotions, his strength, his abilities. The virus makes a person physically unhealthy and it also makes the person mad uh, so that he no longer thinks straight. He no longer sees the world rightly. One person becomes sick with this virus and very rapidly it spreads until the entire population of this world is now affected by this virus. And generations come and generations go and the virus continues to be passed along, remaining rampant and pervasive over the whole population of this planet. Now, imagine that one day one of the people of this planet stumbles into a cave. We're going to call this fella Artemis. And when Artemis enters the cave, he is suddenly transported to a very different place, a, a different world. When Artemis enters the cave, he finds himself in a place full of life and health. The way his planet used to be, though he doesn't know that. And there he meets a man who sees him in his sickness and gives him a medicine. Immediately after taking the medicine, Artemis can feel that it's working. He can feel new life in himself. He's beginning to feel healthier than he has ever been before. And the man who gave him the medicine says, it will continue to work itself out in you. You will gradually become better and better, stronger and stronger, healthier and healthier. And then the man tells Artemis that he must return to his own world, but that anyone else that Artemis sends through that cave will also be helped and will be given this medicine. So Artemis returns through the cave back to his own world and he realizes immediately that he is seeing things much more clearly now. More like they really are. Uh, he thinks about how he used to be before he went into the cave. And he realizes he is now a changed man. And so he runs to his friends. He runs to his family. And he tells them about this experience that he has had. 
He tells them about how he went through this cave into another world. How there was a man who told him he was sick and, and gave him this medicine and he was cured. And as he tells them this story, his friends and family just laugh at him. And they mock at him and they ridicule him. And they are sure that he is the one that's truly gone mad. But over time, it begins to become clear to those around Artemis that something really has changed. Uh, they struggle to lift certain rocks in their fields, but, but now Artemis comes along and he seems stronger. He, he's able to lift them with no straining. They've always worked their fields the same ways, using the same methods, but Artemis has now seen things more clearly and he points out new ways of doing things that saves a great deal of time and effort. In fact, the more these others are around Artemis, the more they begin to believe there might be something to his story. And maybe they really are all sick and he has been made well. Artemis told them again and again about the cave, how, how they should go to it themselves, how they should go to that man for medicine that would help them. But it's only as they begin to see the effects of the medicine in his life that they begin to listen to his words and take them seriously. When he praised that man who made him well, the people had just laughed at him. But now, as they see Artemis' changing life, they begin to think that maybe there is such a man with such wonderful medicine and that they also should go to him for help. Mount Hermon, I'm sure you see that this is an allegory. You and I have been saved from the affliction of sin by the mercies of God. The rest of the world is in blindness and you and I have been given eyes to see. Sin's power is losing its grasp on our lives. We are a healed people. In the midst of a population that is not just spiritually sick, but indeed spiritually dead. And in light of God's mercy that we've received, how are we now to live among our friends and family? How can we honor the one who has done so much for us in this world? How can we live for his praise and his renown? Yes, you should speak of him. Yes, you should tell your testimony as Macon did for us earlier. You should share with others your account of how Christ saved you. But ultimately, it will be through our transformed lives that our words will be taken seriously. As we show through our lives that we have been truly changed, our words will begin to ring true for people. As we learn to conquer our mouths and hold our tongues, we are showing the power of God's gospel in us. As we live in His mercies and therefore show mercy to others. As we are quick to forgive when others would be bitter. As we count others more significant than ourselves because Christ did so for us, people will begin to see something radical really has happened to that person. And so here is how we live for the glory of God. Here is how we offer up spiritual worship. We, we present our bodies, our whole selves to God as living sacrifices and we live holy lives unto Him. And as we saw last Sunday, this means we don't conform to this world any longer. 
We are to be different by God's mercies, through the medicine of the gospel. We are being transformed from the inside out. And so how do we respond to God's grace in our lives? With a transformed life. Look with me again, Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. This is the very word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now last Sunday, we hit hard on what it means to not be conformed to this world. And we said that we must resist the patterns of sinful living that mark this age. As Douglas Moo puts it, we must not be squeezed into the mold of this world. Our values, our priorities, our aims are to be different than our neighbors. The rest of this world is headed downstream. We're to be swimming upstream. But this morning, we come to the second command that Paul gives us to help us live lives of holy worship to God. And the command itself is just two words, be transformed. And our sermon this morning is built on two questions. And the first one is this, what does it mean to be transformed? And so I want to give you four points to answer that question. And then I'm going to sum them all up together in one sentence. Okay, so number one, what does it mean to be transformed? Number one, you need to know that this word appears twice in the Gospels, both referring to the transfiguration of Jesus. So the two occurrences of this word in the Gospels are Matthew 17, 2 and Mark 9, 2. The transfiguration of Jesus. Do you remember what happened at that event? Jesus took Peter and James and John up a mountain, a hill really. And on top of that hill, he gave them a glimpse of his glory. Jesus is a man, but he is also the Son of God, fully God. God's a spirit. He's invisible. He does not have a body like men. But sometimes God chooses to express something of his glory in a visible way. As he did with Moses. As he did with Isaiah. And here, Jesus shows these three disciples that he truly is God by giving them a watered down glimpse of his glory. I say it's watered down because Jesus could have shown himself in such glory that these men were immediately incinerated. But here's the point. At that moment, Jesus was transformed, transfigured. It's the same word before the eyes of his disciples. He he became something very different 
in their eyes than he was just moments before. Suddenly he was bright and brilliant. His, glow, his, his clothes shone white and they, they were covering their eyes and falling on their faces. He maintained his humanity. He was still a man, but he allowed the glory of his divinity to shine in and through his humanity so much so that it was piercing to them. What we learn from here is that this word being transformed, it's not just a small adjustment. It's not a call to make minor alterations to our lives. To be transformed means to experience and undergo a radical, thorough, sweeping change. Second point to help us understand what this word means. This word appears only once more in the entire New Testament. And that's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it's referring to our transformation as we behold the glory of the Lord. I love this verse. We quote this verse all the time around here. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, that's our word, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So just before this, Paul had been talking about reading the Scriptures. And he says that for unbelievers, the Scriptures have a veil over them so that they can read verses and yet not see the glory of God in those verses. But that once the Spirit comes upon us in a saving way, that that veil is removed. And there are times when the scriptures just break open to us, and in them we not only behold the glory of God, but then that glory affects us like it did the face of Moses. It begins to affect us in such a way that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, the more we are beholding the glory of God, the more we ourselves are being transformed by His glory to be more like Him. We learn here that being transformed means being transformed into the likeness of God. That's what Paul's after in Romans 12 too. It's not just transform into any old thing, become any old kind of person. It is a radical, thorough, sweeping change into greater and greater godliness. Third truth to help us understand what this word means. We can see that this transformation is not just an external change, but a change from the inside out. How do we see that? Well, because the rest of Romans 12 is going to help us understand this verse. And as we see Paul work this verse out practically for us, he makes clear that it begins with the transformation inwardly that shows itself outwardly. So you're going to get down to verse 9, and Paul's going to say, let love be genuine. In other words, it, it, it can't just be outwardly loving people. It must be genuine, sincere in the heart. It must come from inside of you. And then he's going to keep repeating that idea in later commands, talking about loving with, with brotherly affection. Uh, talking about being fervent in spirit. Talking about rejoicing in a hope. So many of the ideas of those commands are going to begin with the heart. And so this transformation is from the inside out. And if we had any doubt, Galatians 5 makes it a 
abundantly clear. Paul is not simply calling us to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. He is calling us to be made good inwardly so that the good things we do spring from who we are inside. The the works of the law are to become for us the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, we are to keep the commands of God not as a checklist where we're just checking off boxes of external good works, but rather the commands of God are to become organic for us, natural for us. As the Spirit works inside of us and continues to make us more like Christ, the the, the fruit of the Spirit just, just comes as we live our lives. And then finally, fourth truth to help us understand this word, this transformation by grace is a reversal of the transformation man experienced due to sin. This transformation is a reversal of the transformation man experienced due to sin. Remember who Adam was in the beginning and then remember what sin did to him. Romans 12 is the beginning of of, of undoing that, of bringing us back, bringing us back towards who we will be on the last day when we will be blameless and holy yet again. Remember Romans 1. In the beginning, man was a good creature, a noble creature, a pure creature. But Paul taught us in Romans 1 that sin wrecked us. Sin transformed the human race radically and for the worse. Romans 1 taught us about the downward spiral of sin. And we saw it when we studied Genesis 1 through 11. In Romans 1.28, Paul puts it this way. He says, since they did not see fit... To acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is Paul's description of the transformation that sin did to us. Of what happened to the human race. And how did all this evil come into mankind? It began with man not wanting to worship God, but exchanging the truth for a lie. As Adam and Eve did with the tree in the garden. The result was a desire to worship the creature rather than the creator. Man didn't want to acknowledge God. Uh, Man didn't want to, to give gratitude to him. And because of that, we were given over to exactly what we wanted. Rebellion and sin. A debased mind. And now we live in a world of moral confusion and false worldviews. The whole of humanity is affected by the virus of sin. And we are far less than what we were made to be in the beginning. Our minds are not what they were when we were first created. Our bodies are not as strong as they were when we were first created. Sin has wrecked the human race. What does grace do? It begins to reverse this transformation. The grace of God is fully capable to undo all that sin has done and to go even further. To make us beings who will never fall prey to sin again. The gospel begins to change us. 
like medicine that enters through your bloodstreams and then begins spreading through all the various veins and capillaries of your body. So grace, if you're a Christian, should be spreading through all that you are. Your gospel identity, the love of God for you, poured out into your soul. It should be spreading in you, further transforming your mind, further transforming your emotions, further transforming your desires and your attitudes and your will. And so when you put all this together, what is Paul saying to us? And what is God saying to us through Paul when he says, be transformed? He's saying that we are to be radically changed from the inside out, reversing the inward effects of sin, becoming more and more like our glorious God. And I simply want to ask, is that happening for you? Is that happening for you? The Bible does not know of such a thing as a Christian who is not undergoing that process The name used elsewhere in scripture for this process is sanctification. Every person who is born again by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart and brought to faith in Jesus, that moment, the moment of your conversion, this process began. The new heart was just the beginning of it. It changed who you were at the core, but it should now be showing itself more and more in spiritual growth, a maturing of your faith, a change in your thoughts, attitudes, feelings, words, deeds. Are you a different person than you used to be? Do those who knew you when you were younger, when you cared little for God, when, when, when the things of heaven meant nothing to you, can they say you are not the same person you used to be? Years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman had a song called The Change. And he said, I got myself a t-shirt that says what I believe. I got letters on my bracelet to serve as my ID. I've got the necklace and the keychain." And almost everything a good Christian needs. I've got little Bible magnets on my refrigerator door. I've got a welcome mat to bless you before you walk across my floor. I've got a Jesus bumper sticker and the outline of a fish stuck on my car. And even though this stuff's all well and good, I cannot help but ask myself, what about the change? What about the difference? What about the grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing I'm undergoing the change? Mount Hermon, the greatest witness to the truth and the power of God and his gospel in your life will not be a bumper sticker on your car. And it will not be a fish magnet on your car. The greatest witness to the power of God in our lives is our transformation. The change in us and who we are. Make sure you note this. While sanctification is ultimately a work of God's grace carried out by the Spirit in us, God still requires us to do something. We don't just sit back and say, well, now I'm a Christian. I'm just going to let the Spirit and the gospel do its work and I don't have to do anything. The work of the Spirit in making us godly will cause us to work towards godliness as well. And so Paul says, be transformed. It's a commandment, right? 
He expects us to do something. Be transformed, he says. It's, it's a weird commandment. <laughs> um, you, you know this word. I, I usually don't bring a whole lot of Greek into the pulpit, but you already know this Greek word. It's the word metamorphosis. That's the Greek word here. Metamorphosis. So I, I think of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. This verse calls us to be metamorphized. But it's in the passive voice. So it's clear that this is something done to us. This is a transformation that's done to us. I can't just transform myself. The Spirit of God must transform me. And yet Paul gives it as a command. You, be changed. (laughs) Be changed. Be metamorphized. And so clearly we we have a role. There is something we are to do that serves the Spirit's work. So what are we to do? What are we to do to serve this purpose of us being transformed? Well, he tells us. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So here's what we're to do. Here's how we become radically different people. Here's how we experience that sweeping, thorough change. Here is how we begin to look different to our friends and neighbors. We renew our minds. This is why I love Paul. He is so logical. He doesn't just give you a vague principle and then leave you to yourself to figure out how to make it happen. He gives you help and support. So, so God has been merciful to us. That's Romans 1 through 11. God has shown us amazing mercy. Paul, how do we respond? With worship. That's great, Paul. I agree. But, but how do we do that? By presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Oh, yes, that makes sense, Paul. We, we worship God by living lives unto him. But how do we do that? Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Yes, we must be different. We must not be old creation people anymore. We must be new creation people. We must be different. Paul, how do we do that? By the renewal of your mind. It's like every question you could think to ask, he answers next. He's just constantly leading you one step at a time, one step at a time. It's like a line of dominoes. You ever set up a line of dominoes and knock them down, right? The last domino, the one that you're trying to to, to aim at, is the one of honoring God because he has saved you. It's living a life that honors him because because you want to worship him because he has saved you. That's where you're aiming. But here is the first domino you must start with to reach that one. You must begin with the renewal of your mind. And if you begin there, the chain reaction will happen. The renewal of your mind leads to transformation, so you won't be conformed to the world, and so your body will be a living sacrifice, and God will be worshipped. So here is where it begins. And so this is our second question. What in the world is this? The renewal of our mind. What is it that we're actually being called to do? Remember what we heard just a while ago from Romans 128. That through that, sorry, the thorough wickedness of man stemmed from God giving us over to a debased mind. 
It was a debased mind that God gave mankind over to that led to all sorts of unrighteousness. All manner of sin and wickedness. So now if you want to change a man and you want to lead him away from unrighteousness and back into righteousness, what do you do? You start with his mind. What does debased mean? It means taken off its basis. Basically, at the fall, the mind of human beings was taken off its foundation, off its mooring, and it went haywire. In Romans 1, the mind is debased because it's no longer centered on God. It's no longer acknowledging God. It's no longer oriented on God, thinking God, ordering itself according to God. So what does it mean to bring your mind back to its basis? What does it mean to begin to think rightly again? What does it mean to undo what sin has done? It means to bring yourself back to a God-oriented outlook. It means to put away the insanity caused by sin and to see the world as it really is. From God, through God, for God. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the center of everything. God is what it is all about. God is the greatest treasure. Everything exists for the display of His glory. It was putting that aside that led to all manner of unrighteousness in the human race. And when we're Christians, we come back to that. It's all about Him. He is everything. Now I need to make clear that the word mind in the New Testament means more than just your brain. In fact, in Ephesians 4.23, Paul says something almost exactly like what he says here in our verse this morning. But there he speaks about being renewed in the spirits of your minds. In the spirit of your minds. So your mind is more than just the physical organ that we call your brain. Your mind is a spiritual part of you. Uh, Piper reminds us that we must not think of our minds simply as computers. With a computer, whatever information you put in, that determines what comes out. That's not how this renewing of the mind works. Education alone is not the answer. You have to affect the spirit of the mind. Now don't get me wrong... Education is important. If we're going to be transformed, we have to relearn this world. We have to learn what it is to see it from a God-centered perspective. We have to learn how to see this world in light of the Bible. We have to learn how to re-see our family, our work life, every part of who we are in light of the Bible. The Bible is a book of truths. The Bible is a book with lots of information, and we are to feed our minds on that information. You cannot be a Christian without knowledge. And you cannot have a renewed mind without some level of Christian education, learning truths from the Bible. But that's not the be-all, end-all. If that's all it meant to renew our minds, all we would do is get together and memorize facts. You know, catechisms, questions and answers for kids. Why do I not get up here on Sunday mornings and just lead us all through a catechism for the whole time? And let's just memorize Bible fact. Bible fact after Bible fact after Bible fact. And we'll be transformed. No. You and I both know that the devil knows more Bible facts than any of us in this room. Simply knowing facts of the Bible 
isn't enough. What did we already see? What did we already see in First Corinthians? I'm sorry, in Second Corinthians. We saw that we are transformed by beholding the glory of God in His truth. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So here is how we change. Let me just ask you, do you want to change this morning? Or are you content with who you are? I'm working with an assumption here that you want to be more than you are for Jesus. That there are, there are aspects of your life where you want to be more godly. You want to be holy. And this is a question that we wrestle with. God, how can I change? Here is the answer. Yes, learn God's truth. But it's, it's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. Our minds are renewed by beholding God's glory in his truth. Example one. You read the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is a difference between merely knowing that verse as a factual truth and beholding God in that truth. It's not simply enough to know that all things were made by God. Here is the real question. Has your mind beheld God as the creator of all things? Does your mind acknowledge God as such, see Him as such, reverence Him as such? If you simply learn Christian facts, that will just puff you up. You won't be transformed. You will be arrogant. You can beat anybody at Bible trivia. And by the way, there's lots of people like that on Facebook. right? They know a lot of Bible and they're arrogant about it. And they use it to beat people over the head. It's different when you're beholding God in those truths. Because then the opposite happens. We are humbled before God. The issue is not just, do you know Genesis 1-1, that God created the heavens and the earth? The question is, have you come to adore that God? To stand in awe of that God? That the God who creates supernovas and galaxies and black holes, has your jaw dropped before that God? The more we behold God in that verse, think about what it means. It affects us. It transforms us. And because the mind is the stem of the Christian life, the effects go into everything you are. Your mouth, your attitude, your words, your actions. Example two. You read in the Gospels the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It is one thing simply to know that Jesus fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. It is another thing entirely to marvel at the power of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus. It's another thing to look at how little we have to offer. To think about how frail and feeble and untalented we are. To see our small works for what they are. These things that we do that the world will never pay attention to. And then to realize, my Jesus has the power to make much out of my little. 
My Jesus has the power to bring forth incredible effects and ramifications and benefits that I may never know about out of the little deeds that I do. And so you find yourself on your knees saying, Jesus, all I'm doing is keeping the nursery. All I'm doing is teaching a Sunday school class of four-year-olds. All I'm doing is, is coming up here to mow the grass up at the building. What can Jesus do with our little, little insignificant acts? He can do wonders. Things we may not even understand through our little acts. That, that's the idea. It's not just knowing the truth. It's beholding the glory of God in the truth. That's renewing your mind. Last one. Last example. Because sometimes it takes a little more hard work to behold the glory of God and His truth. So I wanted to choose a hard one and see how that worked. So here's a hard one. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Where's the glory of God there? How is my mind renewed through a verse like that? When we approach Scripture rightly, we come as disciples ready to learn from the Savior who has redeemed us. So the fact that God gives us a command at all about marriage reminds us that it was His idea. It's His institution. He gets to declare how it should work. That should humble us, and that should cause us to honor Him. It should also cause us to acknowledge His goodness and to thank Him for such a good idea as marriage. And then as we think about what the verse is teaching, we must confess that God is wise. And so as we meditate on this verse, we have to ask, God, why in your wisdom would you have wives submit to their husbands? Oh yeah, because marriage isn't actually mainly about us. It's about Christ and his church and the gospel picture that God is displaying in marriage. And as we think about that, suddenly we realize, oh, this is all a picture of the bride submitting to the bridegroom because he's wise and loves her and cares for her. And it becomes an opportunity to worship and to remember again the goodness of Christ. So all of these examples are meant to drive home this one point. If you want to live a life that worships God because of his great mercy to you, it begins with you being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is done by beholding God over and over and over again in His truth. Now, I'm giving examples of beholding God's glory in the truth of His Word because that's the greatest of all places. But the Scriptures are also clear that this world shows to us the glory of God. You can behold the glory of God in a sunset, and it changes you. Uh, Macon mentioned in her testimony how creation had a role in her coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God, and so does everything under the heavens. So even in, in the lesser subjects of learning, the sciences and the maths and the histories and the literatures, anything in this world, you can behold the glory of God, in it, and it transforms you. But of course, there is no place better at the end of the day than in the pages of the Word of God itself. It is the Spirit who makes this happen. But we're to walk with the Spirit. 
(laughs) We are to join with the Spirit. We are to be with the Spirit in this endeavor. We're to love the Word of God, and we're to love the daily hunt for new experiences of beholding the glory of God and His truth. And so I would challenge you in this way. Make this your ambition. To fall a little more in love with God today than you were yesterday by beholding more of Him in His truth. This is the transformed life. It's a life of beholding that transforms. And this is how we live a life of worship to God. May God give us the grace to abound in the transformed life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.